Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. I'm Dr. Lee Schwamm, a neurologist and director of the Massachusetts General Hospital's Center for Telehealth. I'm a volunteer of the American Heart Association, and I work with a group that establishes best practices and standards for telehealth education. And today we're talking about a new era of telehealth, focusing on the boom in telehealth, as well as the past, present, and future of telehealth in cardiovascular care. Welcome to this American Heart Association podcast on Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series. I found in my work that telehealth care is so important to patient outcomes, especially in cardiovascular healthcare. However, there are a lot of questions around when can remote patient care improve outcomes? What does the future look like for patient and healthcare provider interactions? Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, up to 30% of all ambulatory healthcare visits in the United States were conducted through telehealth. At my own center, it was upwards of 60%. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit in this podcast today about what telehealth care looked like before the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, what we learned at a high level from this pre and post pandemic telehealth, and really where things stand now, and what high level a future could look like with this hybrid combination of remote and in-person care. I recently had the privilege of co-authoring an American Heart Association scientific statement, along with Dr. Edwin Takahashi and a panel of leading experts on the role of telehealth in cardiovascular care. In that statement, we really aim to chart the course of that future that I just described. So let's go back in time a little bit and talk about the state of telehealth in general and in cardiovascular care, say, five years ago. Most of what we saw in cardiovascular care outside of stroke five years ago was really a focus around remote patient monitoring, looking to control high blood pressure, perhaps diabetes care, but really very limited use of telehealth in general. Where we saw it really start to evolve was in the use of direct video evaluation for patients experiencing an acute ischemic stroke. In that circumstance, patients were admitted to an emergency department at a hospital that didn't have a stroke expert. And early on, myself and others did pioneering work to understand if we could replicate the in-person experience by using a video camera connected over the internet to remotely evaluate the patient, using teleradiology to receive the brain imaging and remotely evaluate that, and then interact with the patient and the bedside provider to determine if we thought a stroke was happening, if we thought the patient was eligible for thrombolysis, and if so, guide the remote team to administering alteplase at an appropriate dose. This was really a breakthrough in delivering acute time-critical therapy and leveraging the expertise of a neurologist expert who was not located at the bedside to support that type of care delivery. That's important because by the time you moved a patient from one hospital to another, the window of opportunity for treatment had largely evaporated. So this was really creating something new that wasn't just a substitute for in-person care. It was actually better 
than in-person care because getting the provider and the patient together was very, very challenging. Now, this work, which was very time sensitive, high demand, low frequency, was really a challenging thing to accomplish. So the lessons learned in providing acute stroke care were very valuable and instructive in trying to provide care more broadly for a wide array of other conditions. I was joined in this scientific statement by a group of experts. And the first thing we did was to provide a taxonomy of virtual care encounters. And what I mean by that is a way of thinking about these encounters in a framework that makes sense for the way people tend to think about the delivery of care in person. So we created a, a two by three grid where the rows represent visits when care is delivered provider to patient and consults when care is delivered provider to provider. And real-time visits or synchronous visits when they are between provider and patient, we describe as virtual visits. When they are provider to provider, we call those virtual consults. We also have store and forward or asynchronous visit types. And in that scenario, visits that occur between patients and providers are called e-visits. And consults, which occur between patients, between providers and providers, we call e-consults or second opinions. But we also included a third category, which we called hybrid or mixed temporal modes. And remote patient monitoring is really machine or device to patient. And in that scenario, a device like a heart rate monitor or a blood pressure cuff or a glucose monitor is interacting with the patient on a regular basis. And then when it perceives that there is a significant change in the interaction or the data, the machine talks to a provider and we call that predictive analytics. And that is effectively the provider to provider conversation. That's important because it helps us start to think about the kinds of tools that we need in order to replicate this in-person experience in new ways that leverage technology. What are the technologies that have enabled remote care? Well, the first and most important is the relative availability of high bandwidth broadband, which enables patients to access the internet at speeds sufficient for video conferencing, and the development of really consumer-grade, highly effective, highly reliable video conferencing technologies that increasingly can run on more and more devices at very high quality. The connection of those two with existing technologies like patient portals allow for a private, secure, and accurate and reliable connection between patient and provider embedded within the record of that patient so that it's simple and easy for providers to link to the correct patient, document in the correct record, have full view of the patient information during the visit, and the patient doesn't have to remember or memorize a link or go find something in their email. They simply enter their patient portal and start their visit. I think as we think more broadly about cardiovascular health, additional and important technologies are things like automated blood pressure cuffs, uh, pill counters on uh, pills such that the um, frequency of dispensing can be monitored, um, automated weight scales, uh, activity detectors like Fitbits, 
all of these pieces of information now become available for remote patient monitoring, which in cardiovascular disease is incredibly important to ensure long-term adherence to prevention therapies that are so important. The other area where this has been starting to show real promise is in tele-rehabilitation, where specialized stroke rehabilitation can now be administered through a computer screen over the internet with an interface that gamifies rehabilitation and allows the patients to engage in a meaningful way multiple days a week without having to travel long distances to meet with a physical therapist or occupational therapist. And what happened during COVID was so many of the barriers to adoption of telemedicine disappeared. And you'll notice I use the words telemedicine, telehealth, and virtual care somewhat interchangeably here. The definitions really uh, are somewhat arbitrary. Um, I'll tend to use the term virtual care because that has a broader acceptance, I think, now to encompass more than just face-to-face -face video conferencing. Um, but what were those barriers and how were they overcome? Well, many of the barriers were administrative. Barriers to reimbursement, barriers to eligible locations from which a patient could be evaluated, barriers related to licensure and certification, and barriers, quite frankly, to physician and patient reluctance to try this new technology in an environment where the visit was a really important event that many patients waited weeks or months to arrange, and they were worried about introducing any risk that the visit would not be successful. Because prior to COVID, it was in-person versus virtual. It was much more challenging to overcome those obstacles. But when COVID-19 came and we had to shut down most of our ambulatory clinics and social isolation was a major public health intervention, it was virtual care versus nothing. And in that unique scenario, adoption to virtual care uh, became an imperative. In our own health system, almost 95% of our providers adopted virtual care for caring for their ambulatory patients. And in that setting, we saw the vast majority of adoption occur within six weeks of March 15th, which is when the pandemic hit the Boston area. So many organizations now have full-scale adoption of virtual care. However, rates within various specialties can vary dramatically with behavioral health interventions still in the 70 to 80% virtual, whereas primary care has reduced in many places to well below 20% of all interactions. Some of the major obstacles that still remain in the delivery of cardiovascular care for telehealth include things like the institutional infrastructure that's necessary to create and manage a stable and secure platform, one that safeguards patient privacy, but it's still easy to use. There are many legal and regulatory issues that remain, particularly around who is authorized to provide care and in what locations, whether or not that care can be billed for and by whom and, and what at what levels, as well as applying many of the policies that we initiate as they relate to in-person care and whether or not they extend to these virtual care interactions. We also have the bias of some providers, either overly favorable to virtual care, such that some in-person care might be deferred, 
or more commonly, awareness related to virtual care such that they are not eager to embrace that. In many cases, there's reduced reimbursement, particularly for audio-only virtual visits, which proved to be extremely important during the pandemic, especially for patients with behavioral and substance use disorders, many of whom didn't have access to video technology. And we found in some states that reimbursed for audio only much higher rates of adoption compared to states that did not. Lastly, there's a history of distrust of both the health system and of digital technology in general, so that patients may be leery about downloading applications that they're not familiar with, particularly if they're concerns about location tracking with those technologies for patients who themselves or may have family members who are undocumented immigrants. So from the perspective of the patient, what are the benefits that a patient's most likely to experience? I think the biggest one is probably convenience, low cost, and ease of ability to conduct a visit. Many of my patients tell me, though they love to come and see me, that for a 30-minute follow-up visit, if they have to spend two hours driving in each direction, paying for parking, gas, navigating uh, difficult city traffic to spend half an hour with me, that that time is so much more rewarding and well spent if they only have to prepare for a few minutes before the visit and when we hang up, they're back home already. But it does require the patient to be prepared and to have thoughtfully written down questions in advance, have medications, for example, available with them if there's a question about the medications, and have family members present to help support them during the visit if they would ordinarily bring them to a doctor's visit. I think from the health system's perspective, it's really helpful to be able to expand access for patients if I can leverage both the in-office visit space as well as space outside of that clinic office. Because most of the time, there are visits that don't require an examination. And those visits can be conducted over video with a fair amount of the physical exam still conducted, even without being able to touch the patient in person. If I can do that, then multiple physicians can share the same in-person consult space by conducting a portion of their visits over video from an administrative office setting, or quite frankly, from the provider's home if properly equipped. This not only increases flexibility for providers, particularly those who have others that they need to care for, such as young children or older adults, but it also creates a much more seamless use and effective and efficient use of the physical space in the hospital or clinic setting, which is expensive to build and manage. In addition, the flexibility of being able to conduct virtual visits means that when visits are canceled at the last minute in person, it's much easier to make sure that that precious provider time gets filled by another patient because traveling to an appointment over video is obviously much more convenient than traveling in person. You know, if in the post-pandemic world, if telehealth is going to remain a viable solution for expanding access to quality care for everyone, especially those underserved populations, then it's imperative that we have to address concerns about the consistency and quality of healthcare, concerns that have been raised across the healthcare continuum, 
So telehealth care delivery can be challenging, as we've said, and it requires new and different competencies that will give providers a higher level of comfort and confidence. And the delivery of optimal care starts with really gold standard education to advance the skills of health providers and can be found via the Intelligo Professional Education Hub, a new science-based digital learning platform for clinicians and health professionals and scientists that the American Heart Association has developed. There, you'll be able to find science-based telehealth courses that can equip healthcare professionals with the skills and training that they need to deliver. And that's Intelligo Hub, I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-O-H-U-B.org. And I think you'll find it a simple and easy place in which to access this information. The information that you'll find there consists of three evidence-based e-learning courses with continuing education credits as follows. There is a core concepts in telehealth certificate program, which stands for Clinical Operation Regulatory and Ethics course, that gives you a comprehensive view of knowledge about telehealth concepts for implementing delivery across a broad, broad spectrum of service areas. There's a telebehavioral health module that's particularly focused on delivering high quality, compassionate behavioral health care with a focus on special populations like children or older adults and issues around cultural competency. The concept is adaptive to disciplines within behavioral health and includes both acute as well as ambulatory perspectives. And lastly, there's a module on primary care. The teleprimary care curriculum provides best practices through a highly regarded experts in the field, and again, can be focused on ambulatory care perspectives for multiple members of the primary care team. So I encourage all of those in the healthcare field to enhance and expound on their telehealth capabilities. I wanna take this moment to give a special thanks to the American Heart Association, who really envisioned telehealth as one solution to improve healthcare access in underserved areas. But the pandemic really brought that need to the forefront and its potential for all of us to appreciate. The association urges providers to acquire tools to deliver quality remote care effectively and to seek gold standard telehealth education to advance their skills. It's clear that telehealth is evolving as an essential avenue for delivering healthcare especially to populations with limited access to healthcare professionals or facilities. I'm Dr. Lee Schwamm, and this is an American Heart Association podcast on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series. Thank you again for listening.